I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Monday, March 25, 1996. And with Global League shut down, the Super League players headed back to their clubs en masse to prepare for round two of the ARL season. Not all returned, however. And for Matthew Ridge, Ian Roberts and Gordon Tallis, The battle was far from over. This is part three of Together Again, the 27th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Top of the world, how are you? Conflicted about this one. This uh, has brought up some real uh, teenage trauma in me, some of the the subject of this episode. So that's for the back half, so I'll try to proceed as best I can until then. Uh, This is the third and concluding part of our uh, 27th chapter together again, uh, and this will focus specifically on those who didn't come back to the game. Guys that were lost to the game temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, they all did come back in you know varied formats. Anyone who knows I'm a Dragon supporter might be able to work out who we're going to spend some significant time talking about in the back half of this episode. But basically, where we left off in part two was... En masse, the players all returning to the fold. So they put up their little show with Global League. They, you know, made some outlandish statements in the press. But when it all came down to it, everyone basically came back. And it's just such a rugby league thing to do to, you know, threaten this or do this. And, you know, eventually everyone always comes back. Even people that defect come back. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But they didn't all come back. And that's what we're going to talk about. But before we talk about the few individuals that did hold out, uh, I thought it was interesting to look at uh, some of the discussion around the pros and cons of players standing firm that, that was happening in the wake of all the Global League stuff and the threats of boycotts and all the rest of it. So there are a couple of articles, you know, in the midst of this uh, and two very uh, different circumstances and two very different opinions came out from players who had for varying lengths of time held out in the past. So those two players were Ron Coote and Dennis Tuddy. So I think the Dennis Tuddy one is quite well known now, the the sacrifices he made in the early 70s. The Ron Coote story, on the other hand, I think has been kind of forgotten. It definitely is. I haven't thought about it. Yeah, and I think part of that is because it was sorted so quickly. Uh, So basically, in the early part of the 1971 season, Ron Coote wasn't happy with his deal at South and decided not to come back for the start of the season. Of course, he did come back eventually, and then, you know, the following year went to Easts. So this was a, an article in the Sun-Herald uh, by Ian Heads in March 1996 when Ron Coote discusses this decision. He said, It was the hardest four or five weeks I ever had in football, 
After all, I was a professional footballer. Playing football was what I did. It was something I loved, something I was good at. I was 25 years of age and all my mates were playing. Finally, I got sick of sitting on the sidelines and I came back. So here we have Ron <laughs> Coote talking about, you know, this four or five week period know, being the hardest, <laughs> you know, the hardest thing <laughs> in his life. Well, to me, that's the ultimate rugby league thing. Like four or five weeks, I, this is intolerable. I've got to, I've got to backflip, you know, like, <laughs> like uh, yeah. the fact that the other guys did it for a year is just astonishing. Exactly. And, you know, Ron Coote, already an international, would, you know, go on and, you know, multiple premiership winner, would go on to win even more premierships and more acclaim at East in the following years. I don't know where he was with his McDonald's empire in the early 70s, but, you know, became a very well-off man post his football career, described this experience as gut-wrenching this four or five weeks. Dennis Tuddy, on the other hand, nowhere near as decorated as Ron Coote, lost you know years of his football career not weeks uh and you know left the game like with literally nothing the sacrifice he made is you know duly recognized by you know successive generations of players you know his name's on the rugby league players association award uh it was really interesting to see the way he spoke about the players holding out he said if you're men of principle and the principle is strong enough then you'll stay with it until you win Today's players have the chance to become what I always wanted to become, a professional footballer. Nothing worthwhile is gained without struggle. Stay solid and stick to what you believe. He's a real man's man, and I've got so much respect for that guy, and everyone in the game has, obviously. So when these guys did this for Super League, I just I really, really appreciated it because for a game that's sort of built on tough men and you know gladiators and stuff, there's a lot of like unprincipled backflipping that goes on it sort of undermines the spirit of the game if you mind but yeah agreed and i think whatever you want to think about the individual decisions of the players involved you can't deny the integrity i still think and, and it's th- like that now like I, still, I think about him now as a guy that he says something he's gonna do it you know like yeah yeah including knocking you out <laughs> <laughs> But I was really struck by that Tuddy line, and I think it says a lot about his character. So I wanted to set up the episode in those words. Uh, And now that we've done that, let's move on and look at the players involved. There were three players who sat out all or a significant part of the 1996 Rugby League season. They were Gordon Tallis, of course, and then the manly pair, Matthew Ridge and Ian Roberts. Um, Before we get to those two individuals... Uh, I thought it was interesting looking at Manly and some of the drama that was going on in Super League terms. So, you know, we've said it before, it was very much no unrest in the nest. And despite, you know, these strained allegiances, the Manly players seemed to just all get on with business and get on with it. There was some ruffled feathers in the nest with a fallout in the Manly cheerleading squad (laughs) with a, a couple of... A couple of the cheerleaders defecting uh, which didn't please Monique Carroll wife of Spud who was the coach of the Manly cheerleading squad first of all the name Monique Carroll is the ultimate cheerleader boss name Um, (laughs) this has made me laugh so hard reading the research like the cheerleaders are dragged into this war now like is there anybody that hasn't been touched by this war I know I know it's so crazy so uh, Monique Carroll came out and said 
At this stage, I know of two of my girls who have gone to Super League and others are auditioning. <laughs> Naturally, it's tempting for my girls because my information is that they're getting paid $350 a game from Super League. Manly don't pay their girls, but they get everything they need. I was a cheerleader for 13 years and we didn't get paid. You do it because you love the club and it's a way of being part of your club in the area. Yeah, like, like how funny is like cheerleaders like analysing the packages? Like, you know, they're going to China, there's going to be TV deals for us, you know? <laughs> there's shades of the ARL blazer-wearing type saying, you know, playing for Australia is an honour. You, you shouldn't get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> but like we're talking fact- about girls defecting for $350, you know? It, it's like... <laughs> you got girls named Tina getting swept up in the vision, right? What next, the canteen ladies? I mean, when Roz has gone over to Super League. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on from that and turn to the players themselves. Uh, and I want to start with Matthew Ridge, who is there a more obvious signing for Super League than Matthew Ridge? No, but I was just thinking about that then. It's like, I got so much respect for Talos for what he did, but I never put Ridge in the same category and he did the same thing. And the reason is, I think, is because he would have done this just for the niggle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not really the principle, it's like the stick it up you bloke sort of thing, you know what I mean? I think with him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And, I mean, we'll get to it. Unlike Talos, Ridge did come back. Any Dragons fan will remember uh, his appearance in the grand final that year, but that's a story for another time. The funny thing about Matthew Ridge is he was kind of 10 times Laurie Daly in his outlandish public statements. Uh, and, you know, got nowhere near the same amount of flack for it. And I think that can all be put down to the fact that, like, everyone already thought he was a dick. I don't remember him being in a mug lair. I remember him being sort of, like, arrogant and swaggery on the field. But, like, looking back now, he was a mug lair, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, making some really strong points all along the way. I haven't disagreed with Matthew Ridge once in this series. Not no. even joking. yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It, it's just, it's maybe the way he phrases some of his grievances, but like he's basically always on the money. The way he addresses his reason for signing with Super League uh, and, you know, his disappointment at the way the court case came out. This was in uh, that same interview we discussed last week uh, in the Rugby League week of March 1996. He said, If Super League goes away, we've only got an Australian competition and we're all going to go back to park football. Nobody I know wants to go back to playing Balmain on a cold Saturday night in front of 3,000 people who were only there because they got free tickets. That actually happened last year. Yeah, 100%. Where it gets funny and where maybe he could have phrased things a bit differently, you remember his comments about uh, all respect to his honour. <laughs> I think similarly, anytime Matthew Ridge starts a sentence with, I'm not being disrespectful, you know something good is coming next. <laughs> and so in that same article, he said, I'm not being disrespectful, but South, Balmain and the Gold Coast, who wants to play them? I don't. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Excuse me. <coughs> God, he's the funniest bloke in the world. So almost instantly he you know, became a, a key mouthpiece for Super League players, you know, occasionally saying things that maybe would have been left better unsaid. So uh, he also said that after the, they lost the court case, what Super League should have done, they've already, uh, you know, got the Super Rugby started. 
They should just forget about rugby league and, and pour everything into rugby union. That'd really show the ARL. <laughs> I mean, I think it was probably good advice for Rupert Murdoch and Ken Cowley to just forget about rugby league and go all in on that. But uh, I think that's not going to subdue the flames that you know this court case was causing. I really appreciate his uh, his thirst for spite because I've just uh, it really resonates with me. I love it. <laughs> but so Matthew Ridge's response to everything that was happening was to decide that well he was a Super League player he'd signed with Super League he wanted to play in Auckland so that's what he was going to do so he left Australia and joined the Warriors despite having only one contract in place for 1996 that contract being with Manly never stopped anyone before uh, but, you know, he had a very valid reason. As he said, I'm not interested in playing for anyone else. So, you know, case closed. He, he's at Auckland. I mean, the, all due respect to his honour, he can't tell Ridgie where to play. Uh, but it, it's so funny that he just, without a contract in in place, decides that he's joining Auckland anyway, goes over there, immediately becomes their key spokesman. You know, he was their representative in the group of 10 uh, and, you know, every public statement is, you know, by him. Uh, and to that, Ridge said, well, the the players asked John Kerwin and myself to be their voice. What am I supposed to do? Say, no, guys, I can't do that because I'm not with you yet. I'm here, mate. I've been living here for two and a half months and I'm not interested in playing for anyone else. I want to play for the Warriors. The players look up to me and I have their interests at heart. If they tell me, Ridgie, we don't want you to say any more, go away, then I'll go away. <laughs> which I, I would have loved to see that tested <laughs> Bridget, I don't want you to say anymore oh come on mate what are you, you're kidding aren't you I'm the best mouthpiece we've got <laughs> but so from the manly side of it they were, were adamant that well no he's signed with us so he's playing with us in 1996 so they held firm naming him in their seventh squad in February uh, he refused to play Uh, And, you know, his learned legal opinion was it would be hard for them to commit me to Manly when I don't want to play there. I think the only worst legal opinion you can get is that Ridgie is mine. But the, um, what was I going to say? It just goes to show what a great player he is, that the fact that Manly just goes, yeah, well, like, you know, you sign with us, come back after all the bullshit. (laughs) That's how good a player he was. Yeah, well, it it just goes back to Bob Fulton and his type of click in rugby league was can you help me win? Matthew mm. Ridge very definitely could. And so he was like, well, he's not playing anywhere else, but we'll gladly take him. So his exact quote was, Matthew's position is he'll play with Manly or not at all. That's all there is to it. That isn't a threat. That's the cold hard facts as they are. And it's also what the court says. There are legal complications involved with Ridgie. He's made some statements, but he's never said anything against Manly, myself, or any of the players. If he came back here, he'd be very, very welcome. Very pragmatic, Bozo. Yeah, totally. And this was Bob Fulton's line the whole time with Ian Roberts as well. It was like, no, they're not playing anywhere else, but we'd love to have them back. You know, they're very welcome. They'd really help us. So, you know, come back anytime. Well, on a side note, I don't know why clubs don't take that stance more often than not. Like, instead of just going, oh, yeah. if they don't want to be here, they can just get out of their contract. I'd say, well, you can just sit on the sidelines for two years. Like Exactly. And we saw the exact same thing from Manly and St. George in this instance. And, you know, you're totally right. You wonder why you don't see clubs doing it more. 
And it just always seems to fall back on the, the pub argument, you know, oh, if he doesn't want to be here, he can piss off. It's like, well, yeah, but we're not going to be have him play for another club while he's supposed to be here and, you know, harm our yeah. chances. What about um, we make an example out of one or two of them and then see if they want to sit out yeah. for two years and ruin their career? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in the midst of this, court action was filed. So, I mean, I think it's a, a fairly clear breach of contract. But an interesting element of Ridge's legal argument was that he was challenging his manly contract on the basis that it was signed when a salary cap was operating. And I mean, I think that's pretty good grounds to argue that... To say it's invalid. Yeah. It's like a contract was signed when one set of financial conditions and restraints were in place. Those conditions are no longer in place. Therefore, you know, you're being held to something that, you know, is no longer fair. It's It's no longer, you know, market value. It wouldn't surprise me if they actually developed a wing of the courts for the rugby league in that era. Is <laughs> the rugby league yeah, yeah. A wing? <laughs> um, but so it's, you know, the case never made it to court in the end. Ridge came back. But I think that would have been really interesting if that side of things had been tested. There's so much left untested in this whole war, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there really is. Um, so basically the first hearing of the matter wasn't scheduled until late April. So from that point on, Ridge was starting to realise that his chances of playing in 1996 were very slim if he went through with the court case. So I think that's one element we're going to keep in mind uh, as we think about him returning to the fold. The other side of things was that the Warriors, Warriors management at least, were very unequivocal in saying, he's not our player, he's not signed to us, don't sue us ARL, don't sue us Manly, it's nothing to do with us. It's all on him. So the chairman, Gerald Ryan, came out and said, he has no position with the Warriors. As far as I'm concerned, he's a manly player. We haven't bought out his contract, and right now I don't think we would. Even if we wanted to, I don't think the Warriors could afford to buy out his contract after what has been done to us. How are they hurting for cash already in 96? (laughs) But also, it's it's just classic Matthew Ridge that the chairman of the club has come out (laughs) making public statements saying... He doesn't play for us. He hasn't signed with us. <laughs> Meanwhile, Matthew Ridge is there representing the club and talking about the boys and all the rest of it. Well, the chairman obviously didn't realise he wasn't interested in playing anywhere else. <laughs> if he'd known that, uh, he would have been. A- <laughs> and Ridge further strained relations between him and Warriors management in the midst of the global league crisis by telling Warriors season ticket holders that their season tickets would be valid uh, under Global League and that they'd be setting up a new infrastructure so Warriors employees were invited to apply for positions. (laughs) So he's destabilising the actual club from the foundations. (laughs) He's a one-man wrecking crew, a hurricane of a man. He took it even further uh, by going after the club's key sponsor as well. So this is the first reading we're going to do from the Book of Ridge, Take No Prisoners, in this chapter. But uh, there was a meeting between the players uh, and some of the board members, one of those board members being Brian Blake, the boss of Dominion Breweries. I'll let Ridgie tell the story. Brian Blake says, look, 
We've got the power to destroy your contracts and make it very difficult for you. We can withdraw sponsored cars that you're using, but I'm not holding a bat to your heads. I'm just telling you how it is. So I get up and say, listen, Brian, if you're not holding a bat to our heads, what the fuck do you think you're doing? If that's not threatening us, then what are you doing? <laughs> Again, I, I just say it, it how it is. <laughs> I just say it how it is, and he doesn't like it. I guess he thinks, hey, I'm the big corporate cheese. How dare you speak to me like that? But it's more like, hey, listen, man, you're fucking with our livelihoods. <laughs> Can you imagine? See, I respect that so much. Imagine being at a board meeting of actual businessmen and someone goes, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) He's the best. Every passage I read about Matthew Ridge just makes me love him more and more. Like, he is the greatest. He would be the greatest comedian ever because he's got no um, pretense. It's totally real, totally him. Yeah, exactly. But so as this was all going on, the noose was gradually tightening. It was looking very unlikely that he'd be able to play for Auckland uh, and Manly kept calling. So Auckland, you know, went out of that their way to distance themselves from Ridge, you know, not taking him to away games, especially in early season encounter with Manly, uh, reiterating over and over, he's not our player. <laughs> Well, so hang on, like, why was that even a consideration if he's not their player? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I wonder all through this, like, is he wearing the club polos and and like, like, what is his involvement? Like, is he being invited to all these meetings or is he just showing up? Surely it was the player power because, like, why else wouldn't they just have security removing him from the boardroom if that was the case? You know, yeah, yeah. I think there was. A bit of a, a struggle behind the scenes. So uh, John Mooney was one who, you know, who first attracted him to the club. And there was some friction there because I think early on Mooney wanted him there. The Warriors board didn't. So I think the, the coach and the players kind of wanted him there. So that's probably how it all played out. Well, all due respect to the Warriors board, I mean, who else were they going to be playing? He's international. Like, why wouldn't they want him there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess they just didn't want to get sued. You can see that in all of their actions throughout the war, whether it was, you know, the threat, you know, the possibility of going back to the ARL or this circumstance, they were seemed to live in constant fear of being sued, which in this climate is probably for good reason. <laughs> yeah. But uh, offering some very rare introspection, uh, Ridge in an interview with Danny Weidler said, I've pushed myself in a corner and I didn't think it would go down this road. I don't regret my stance for one second, but I didn't think it would get to this point. I never thought it would go this far. So I think by early April, he's, you know, really thinking that, oh, shit, this is really happening. I I thought they'd just let me go, but now, you know, I'm going to have to go back to Manly. Well, that's the classic rugby league, you know, four-week itch. You know, I should be playing with the boys, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the other things... On Ridge's mind was the fact that he got to the Warriors and found the setup not to his liking as it was with Manly. So despite Moni's early support of him, Ridge, you know, fell out with Moni quite early on in the piece. Didn't really rate him as a, a coach. That's something we'll, we'll come back to talk about in 1997. But I think after working with Bob Fulton for so many years, Graham Lowe before that, Ridge got there and, and thought that Warriors training was just a couple of steps off the pace. 
And he was particularly critical of, of Moni's communication skills. Well, let me ask you this. How many times have you heard this in rugby league that the coach was a bad communicator when the job is literally 100% communication? Yeah, yeah, totally. How do you get past the meeting if you're a bad communicator? And they just go, oh, well, he lost the dressing room, he can't communicate. Well, that's sort of on the board for hiring him. When we did our 1987 episode, you know, back in the old days of the show, we were talking about Moni at Parramatta in 86 and, you know, winning a premiership there going on to have great success at Wigan. But I was like, was he really that great a coach or did he just always have an awesome yeah. team? Yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, he did have his defenders, like Peter Sterling was one who spoke glowingly about him as a coach. But, you, you know, you see him in this situation, the first time he's really been tested with, I, I wouldn't even say it was an average roster. It was like a pretty good roster, really. Uh, and he, he yeah. couldn't really get them going. Expansion club, though. But, I mean... Um- yeah, yeah. And, and almost made the semis the first year. Yeah, yeah. And so in the end, Ridge did come back. So in late April, on the 24th of April, in the Rugby League week, Bozo once again, you know, said where he was at. He said, as far as I'm concerned, he'd be welcome back here with open arms. Matthew hasn't criticised any individual in this club and he hasn't got personal. He took a stand and that's his prerogative in a democratic society. But things have changed dramatically since he made his decision. I love when they bring it's a free country argument into it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but one of the most telling things for me is that when I was like researching all this, I was like, okay, I've got to go back to the book. I want to see everything that Ridge said about his decision to come back. There's got to be some gold in that. Uh, in the end, you got a two sentence answer. I end up heading back to Manly for the 1996 season anyway. The court battle looks like it'll be more trouble than it's worth, so I give it a miss. <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I had that easygoing attitude to life like he's got. And he plays what's in front of him in life and the field. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, I wasn't feeling it, so gave it a miss. Uh, <laughs> but he, he got back to manly training and instantly made himself known in the most ridgy way possible, uh, turning up, finding Mark Carroll and telling him that Glenn Lazarus was the best prop in Australia, <laughs> giving Terry Hill grief for missing the New South Wales Origin squad. The fact that he gets under Terry Hill's skin should tell you everything you need to know about him. Uh, and I think the boys just put it behind them. Mark Carroll saying, he just walked into training and started bagging everyone. That's just Ridgie. <laughs> no, shirts, sure, bud, they make it for men or... <laughs> But in a very real sense, Carroll and the rest of the Manly team realised what an asset he was and how important he was going to be to their quest for the premiership. Mark Carroll going on in that same interview to say, now we'll win the comp. Well, they don't win the comp without Ridge. No, of course not. Uh, Like, he was that important. And I think that's what everyone realised. You know, Bozo especially. You know, I just want Ridgey back. And Ridge's comments about being back after all of this had happened... He just said, I'm glad to be back on the field, even though everyone knows I'd like to be playing with Auckland. Now I'm back here, I'm going to do my damnedest with Manly, and hopefully we'll go one better than last year and win the grand final. And that was basically all there was to it. It's like, okay, we went through all of that, but I'm back now, I'm here, so let's go. That's a true professional that can actually like perform on the field in the face of other things happening. So rare in rugby league, like someone gets a stone in their shoe and it puts them out mentally for 12 weeks, you know, like, yeah, he's yeah. a true professional. But when, when I read that 
that quote, I think a lot of the, the trope that you often discuss about the boys making him feel welcome, mm. you know, it, that will, that will cure any ill as long as the boys yeah. will make, the, make them f- player feel welcome. You know, they'll forget about their homesickness. They'll, they'll settle in and, you know, enjoy their new club. This, this is the rare instance of the boys making him feel welcome when he was already at the club. When, but this is a case of him making them feel them feel unwelcome by bagging them. <laughs> but you say professional and yeah, you say professional and and I think that is a very apt word. And so I'm going to reread a passage I read in last week's chapter in relation to Laurie Daly. You might recall that I redacted the name of one player in that story, and that player was Matthew Ridge. So I'm just going to reread that passage. The word professional is bandied about with such monotonous regularity in rugby league these days, it's become almost meaningless. Players tend to talk of football clubs as being really professional if they get the jumpers clean each week. But two players who have operated to the very best meaning of the word, not for the things they say but for the things they do on the football field, are Laurie Daly and Matthew Ridge. Their efforts last weekend were what professionalism is all about, true value for good reward. Neither of them was terribly popular for utterances during the recent unpleasantness, but both have proved themselves far too good to let bitterness affect their game. Ridge was simply extraordinary for Manly against Canterbury, given that he was practically dragged back to Brookvale, kicking and screaming, and that he'd not played a game for nearly seven months. That's insane. He came back in his first game, sets up three tries, kicked four goals, shuts the dogs out on defence, as if nothing happened. Seven months. Yeah. So I think that just illustrates what a class act he was as a player. I definitely didn't give him enough respect as a viewer back then. In hindsight, much, much, much better player. Mm. But so the other player at Manly who didn't come back was Ian Roberts. And unlike Ridge, he stayed gone. He didn't come back at all. Uh, And we discussed it a bit when he signed with Super League, but this was a period where so much was going on in his life. He obviously came out. Uh, in the midst of all this, he was also going through, um, you know, some bad financial problems, lost all his money. So there was a lot going on with Ian Roberts at this time. Uh, and also he had a, you know, bad injury that was going to keep him out for most of the regular season anyway. So, I mean, I don't think in his book he specifically says he had depression, but you can see that like something was off with his mental state during this period. He was just dealing with a lot of changes in his life and a lot of, personal struggle and i think that factored into to his ultimate decision you forget how big a you know monumental thing that was the first pro athlete to come yeah. out in, in this sport and um it's gonna knock you around a bit surely and the thing about it was that once he came out he he suddenly became a lot more visible in society and, and yeah he was like getting opportunities that you know other rugby league players weren't getting in terms of some of the media coverage he was getting. But then also he was having to be the, you know, the face of homosexuality for rugby league, which at that point wasn't known for very enlightened attitudes towards much of anything, really. You know, he went on the footy show after coming out. And this was a genuine effort by the hosts of the footy show to kind of, you know, make their stand and say that, like, it's fine, it's a normal thing in society. So, you know, as rugby league, we've got to embrace this and just go on with it. And what more normal way to do that than have Mahatma Coat come out and say, you're welcome, Ian. Yeah, and that's where I was getting at. I think it was a genuine attempt 
that just went horrifically wrong. Um, there's the Mahatma coat. There's Fatty Vorton saying that there's Fatty Vorton saying that he heard the rumors, but when he was at Manly, but he doubted it because Ian was a good bloke. <laughs> which, which, <laughs> which I don't think Fatty meant in a vindictive sense, but you can see that just undoing any good work that the panel had done uh, in that one comment. I mean, like, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to their credit, in the months that followed, you know, the footy show guys went to, to efforts to make amends. I don't know if these ever made it up to Newcastle, but there are all these, like, posters on the train stations in Sydney with, like, Fatty and Sturlo and, I don't know, Blocker, whoever else. I think they were wearing hats or shirts or something that said, say no to homophobia, a message along those lines. So, like, you know, they went through with an attempt to fix that and to, like, hammer home the original message they were trying to convey. I sort of remember it at the time and it was like everyone was all positive about it. Even guys in Newcastle that, you know, backward sort of blokes was like, mate, he's a horse, horse, but, you know, each to their own, you know. It was like a – it was a positive uh, vibe and in a backwards way, you know. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. But I feel so bad for Ian Roberts over the years because he's constantly, like – seeing this progress happen and then something, you know, coming along to undo it and this cycle just kind of repeating itself endlessly. Like, you know, so just a few years after this was happening, you had Trent the flight steward and, you know, he's <laughs> he's caught up in these cycles yet again. Yeah, but I mean, like, honestly, they're doing like 80s humour because they're 80s blokes, right? Like, I don't think he would expect footy players knowing them have any other idea, you know, like just the fact no, that they accepted and, him is yeah. enough, you know. <laughs> and he actually, uh, in 1996, was interviewed by Danny Widler and said that the footy show has a huge gay following because because the the way they dress up in drag. So <laughs> I, I don't think he was like especially anti-footy show. But beyond all this, everything else going on with his life, I think, was starting to affect him. So I mentioned that injury he was, you know, going to Manly for rehab uh, in the midst of trying to obtain a release. And everything was seemingly cordial for a while. But according to Ian, one time he was there, Frank Stannon, the chief executive, came up to him with an affidavit saying he had to get it, get him to sign it before they could talk in case, you know, anything could be used in court. And, you know, Ian took that really personally, thinking that, you know, we've had this relationship for so many years and, you know, you're doing this. And that seemed to sour that relationship. To be fair, like with everything going on, I don't think it's an unreasonable, no, you know, request. And and this blurring of the handshake deal versus legal contract thing is what's hurt rugby league more than anything. Yeah, totally. But that was a real grievance that Roberts felt, and so he ended up uh, undergoing a knee reconstruction and you know distancing himself from Manly. Uh, At one point in the midst of it, they seized the car he was using because it was provided by a a Sea Eagle sponsor and, you know, because he wasn't coming back, they, you know, took it back. What is it with rugby league players that cannot purchase their own car or lease a car themselves? They have to have a sponsor's (laughs) car and it's a major deal when it gets taken and stuff. They're obsessed with free cars, these people. And it's funny because Bozo came out with a statement that was was very similar to what he said about Ridge. Um, So this was in May 1996. He said, Ian said a number of things. The latest statements about getting more money. If he comes back, he'll get paid by Super League. How much money does he want? 
I'd love to have Ian Roberts back here too. He has two years to go on his contract, but he's going to court and thinks he has a chance to win. We think he has Buckley's. Overall, I'd love to have him back. He's a great player. So Bozo, you know, straddling that same like firm but loving line that he adopted with Ridge. I think Ridge, it was like water off a duck's back, you know, oh, it's just a G up. Whereas like Roberts, I think probably (laughs) took it a bit more personally. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, um, he was broken down by then anyway, so it's like yeah. I mean, he didn't have much left, but he but he was a healthy scratching for the grand final. Like the the knee reconstruction um, had healed, and I mean, in whatever diminished capacity, he still would have been, you know, an asset for Manly on the field. But it seems like the the final straw was the Super League players being left out of the nineteen ninety five World Cup squad. So he said, I was filthy on the selection of the World Cup team. I was told there'd be no bias. I fulfilled my end of the deal, but the ARL didn't. It was then I vowed I'd never go back and play with an ARL team. See, that's principle there because I was filthy on it too because they said publicly there was be no bias. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, great, full squads. Um, and then they come yeah. out and did that. Oh, no, no. Um, we we believe that uh, Jeff Tuvey's the best halfback in the country. It's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm definitely on on Team Roberts on that one, but it's interesting what he said about that in relation to Manly. He said, "I think someone at Manly should have spoken up for us." And when you think about who that someone might have been, uh, <laughs> I would suggest that maybe the Manly coach, who was also the Australian coach, would have had some sway in that. But it's funny that like even after all these harsh words flying either way. Ian Roberts went out of his way to say how much respect he had for Bozo and Frank Stannon and the players. Like at grand final time, he said that he was really, you know, pulling for them to win it and, you know, and saying, you know, Bozo, I've spoken, I'm still close to Bozo and he fully understands why I'm not playing. He sounds like he really loved the joint. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I I don't get. Like as late as July, it was being reported, you know, by the likes of Roy Masters that he was fit and was likely to be back um, you know, within a few weeks, like earlier in 1995, Ian Roberts was saying, I've got, no, I've signed with Super League, but I've got no problem playing for Manly. Um, so that just makes me think that it is like all these bigger issues that are, are playing on his mind, you know, w- with his ultimate decision. I think he was mm. just really hurt by the experience. If you're having personal issues, what you don't need is a, a, um, a genocidal civil war in your sport you play. <laughs> Um, so that was Manly. Let's turn to the other club that was having an issue with this, and that was the Dragons. So obviously Gordon Tallis is, is the main player we're going to talk about in this, but starting the year, several Dragons players uh, had either trained with Super League clubs in the off-season or had done that and was still yet to return. So starting the 1996 season, Nathan Brown, Jason and Paul Stevens were at Cronulla. Anthony Mundine had spent time in the off-season training with the Bulldogs and, you know, all of them were at the start of the season not with the Dragons. I forgot about the Stephen brothers. And at first the way it was reporting made it seem like it wasn't really an issue. So uh, Nathan Brown and Anthony Mundine shared a manager who basically came out in the press and said after the court case, oh, yeah, I think they'll be back at St. George pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And and Mundine, in fact, did come back pretty early in the piece. Like, he only missed round one. He was back in the team for round two. And almost instantly, once he was back, Mundine was, like, imploring the other players to join him. He said, you know, I, 
basically saying that the boys had made him feel welcome uh, and he did, in fact, never felt more welcome at St. George. So he was saying, you know, come back. You don't want to be sitting out. You know, just come and join us. Which is so funny because you think about Anthony Mundine and the way his career has progressed in the 25 years since. It seems like he's someone who would have been leading the charge for for holding out. Yeah, well, I mean, same as Ridgie. If they didn't have Mundine, they wouldn't have made the grand final. Yeah. And I think they were all close, which made the decision of someone like Nathan Brown difficult. Uh, And, you know, he came out and said, I don't really know what club I want to play for now. I wouldn't care which one it is. At the moment, I'm just missing footy and missing training with the team and having some fun. I wouldn't mind going back to St. George. It's a lot more attractive now than it was three months ago. They're a good bunch of blokes. Three months makes a world of difference. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then Nathan Brown eventually decided to come back. The Stevens brothers did as well. It was being reported that uh, Harry Eden, uh, uncle of friend of the show Mike Eden, delivered them to St. George training. I just love that. Like it's, you know, this hostage situation. and <laughs> Delivered from evil. <laughs> uh, and basically what it all came down to was the players getting an indemnity for the Dragons to not take legal action against Cronulla. Um, that made it, you know acceptable for them all to come back so they did and that left only gordon tallis who didn't come back so we're gonna you know give a bit of an expanded talk about gordon tallis and i wanted to start this by you know giving a short history of uh, his rise into first grade and his time at the dragons um because i I kind of feel that tallis's st george years have been somewhat lost to time like i don't think many non-st george fans really associate him with the club at all? Well, I was there at Newcastle when he got sent off. I was there right on the sideline. Off oh, of the headbutt. Yep. And uh, there were some very unkind things said by the Newcastle crowd. <laughs> but he was <laughs> he was an t- absolute tearaway off the bench. And um, you just knew he was, um, to quote Ricky Stewart, something special. Yeah. And, I mean, we'll get into it. But, like, I always kind of got it in my head that, like, we kind of got the best out of him. Um, and I think that there's some reasons for that perception, which I'll get into. But, I mean, I just, I loved having him at the Dragons. It was so good. Mm. When I was thinking about it, the, the closest comparison I could come up with was early Sonny Bill at the Dogs. Early Geyer as well. But, yeah, like, so, like, both, you know, like, coming off the bench, just this, as soon as he was on, you know, something was going to happen and, and, you know, the fans kind of, like, going nuts for it. And, and I was... After I made that comparison, it was only like a few minutes later that I realized the way the Sonny Bill thing at the Dogs ended as well. So it's interesting that, you know, in both cases, it didn't go how the fans would have wanted. So Talis was discovered by Rod Reddy up in Townsville as a, you know, young teenager, as, as someone that was, in Reddy's words, very raw, but clearly talented. Wayne Bennett met him around this time as well because... Talis's brother Wally was in the Broncos system at the time uh, and at a testimonial for Gene Miles and Greg Dowling, Gordon Talis went up to Bennett to introduce himself and basically said, you've got the wrong Talis. I love that story so much. I know. Just the uh, the self-belief and arrogance of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he told Bennett that he had a deal with the Dragon, so he was going down to Sydney and, you know, Bennett wished him good luck. And so it was basically Rod Reddy who brought him to the Dragon, so... Reddy was coming down as an assistant coach, brought Talis down to trial. Reddy said that in his second trial game there, 
they only left him on for like, you know, five minutes or so and then brought him off. Talos thought it was because he'd done something wrong, but really it was because they hadn't signed him yet and they didn't want any clubs to get too good a look at him before they could get pen on paper. <laughs> Rubby Lee Skullduggery. <laughs> um, but Reddy talks about, you know, taking Talos to the park and showing him, you know, some things he was doing wrong, some things he could work on. So one of the things he said that he was, you know, running into the line like a fast bowler, like taking these like 30 meter, you know, run ups to, <laughs> to for his hit up. You know, he's saying, no, 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 don't waste all your energy on your run up. Just get the ball and hit the line, you know. And Talis has said what an influence Rod Reddy was to him in the early part of his career. But I love the way that Rod Reddy said that he just taught him, uh, in Reddy's words, just little things that Harry Bath had taught me when I came down from North Queensland. You can just see the Harry Bath coaching tree yeah. extending right through to Gordon Tallis. Amazing. I just love that. You know, obviously we're massive Harry Bath admirers on this show. Just think about Tallis' early years. Was he the sort of originator of the post-contact leg speed, leg drive era? Like followed on by guys like Watmo and those sort of characters? Yeah, I've- I think there's something to that. And a story that might illustrate that is uh, Brian Smith talking about Talos at Dragon's training. Um, this was in Talos's book. He said that in training, he'd, you know, be doing these unopposed runs, but he'd be like, you know, sidestepping and, you know, like doing little spin moves and all that sort of thing, you know, like training as if there were players in front of him. And, you know, the older players at the club kind of like, you know, thought he was a nut job, like, what's he doing? But that was something that, like, <laughs> players in the NFL were already doing. And so it, it seems pretty clear that from early on he was, like, cut from a different cloth. Yeah. You know, in that same book, um, Nathan Brown says that all the under-19s players were kind of, you know, living together in this house and hanging out together a lot. And some of the under-21s players would come in and just raid their fridge and, you know, act all tough. But then one time Talis said, you know, who you blokes think you are just because you're under the 21s? And they kind of like gave him shit. But then they saw him play and, you know, they were suddenly like, you know, oh, hey, Gordy, Gordy, you know, how's it going? Well, not just seeing him play, looking in his eyes would have been enough, wouldn't it? (laughs) Jesus. And so he quite quickly became a phenomenon and, and something that, you know, everyone was talking about. Came on in, you know, 93, became a real presence there. But then it was 1994 that you'd say that was his real breakout year. You know, he made Origin that year, and that's where he developed the reputation as the super sub at St. George, which I think is probably the two words most used about Dragon's era, Gordon Tallis. It makes me wonder if he was a blue, whether they would have selected him back then, you know, (laughs) I mean, even those selectors would have had to select him. He was that good. Well, funnily enough, Jeff Carr actually tried to claim him from the Blues. <laughs> he said that uh, uh, this is a Steve Mascord column uh, from the Herald in March 1994. Carr, meanwhile, said Tallis had been recruited from Townsville as a 17-year-old, having done nothing in Queensland. He's a St. George Junior, and while everyone has been saying he's a big chance to play for Queensland this year, my point is that New South Wales has as much, if not more, claim on him. <laughs> Which, I don't know, coming down as a 17-year-old, yeah, I think Queensland, you know, have a right. But I want to talk about the super sub thing for a minute because I think this is where his cult status like really came into play. It was, you know, watching the Dragons, Dragons games in that era, it was like, you know, oh, Talos is warming up, you know, and coming on the field to a big roar. Everyone just knows who's the real deal, you know, and it was just a real deal. Yeah, 
But I think this kind of the way he was used as the the super sub through 1994, I think that's colored my perception of the Dragons getting the best years of him because I always felt Talos at the Broncos was just never quite as destructive as he was at the Dragons. You're such a Dragons blinded dummy sometimes. No, just just you- just let me finish. Let let me finish. <laughs> but look w- when I've been thinking about that for this episode, I was like, well, yeah, of course, when you've got him on the bench for 30 minutes and, you know, like he's got this fury in his eyes because he just wants to be on the field and you're just kind of like tactically injecting him in these 20 minute stints, you're going to play a different way to when you're, you know, a leader in the forwards and playing, you know, anywhere between 60 and 80 minutes. With that logic, Hitro Ocasini would have been the all-time best player. <laughs> but yeah, like until you heard his neck in Ink Brisbane, he was like the best forward in the world. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. So, and obviously, I watched him a lot more closely at the Dragons. Uh, and then, you know, part of me, I think that was part of my, you know, process of moving on after he did what he did to us. Just say, oh, he's not that good anyway. He's a spent force, <laughs> Gordon Tallis. How funny is that? As he comes into his prime, you're declaring him spent <laughs> <laughs> As he's racking up premiership wins at Origin victories. Yeah, we got the best years of him. Don't worry. <laughs> but uh, so he, he quite quickly became a fan favorite, as, as my deranged rantings there might indicate. Made his way to Origin in 1994. I love uh, Chris Close in Talis's book saying that he looked at Gordon's eyes and they were on fire. You know, that was when he first met him in the Queensland camp. And it's like, yep, he's ready. He's good to go. What would it be like walking around with that sort of intensity all the time? I know, like, yeah. I know he's chilled out now and everything, you know, he's commentating and stuff, but like, it seems like he was on fire, as he said, for about 12 years while he was playing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one person who wasn't sold on his worth as an Origin player in this period was Martin Bella. So Bella was left out of the Origin team in 1994 after game one in 1994, after 19 consecutive matches for Queensland. Uh, he actually said he didn't mind it so much because it was a lot of pressure and he was actually enjoying the Origin period where he didn't have all that stress. But they asked him about Talis and he said, I think Talis is one of the most overrated footballers getting around. Jason <laughs> Smith is a far better footballer. Talis has been picked on media hype coming on as a bloody replacement. That's not to say in a couple of years he won't be really good, but at the moment he's still finding his feet. That's real old school, isn't it? Like You wouldn't get a statement like that today, hey? If he's not starting, he's not a real player. <laughs> <laughs> but by 1995, he was still the super sub in the early part of the year, but um, you know played most in 1995 as a starter. He ended up finishing equal second in Rugby League Week's Player of the Year that year. And obviously, there was massive interest in signing him as a player. So by 1995, he'd clearly arrived as, you know, an elite player, like one of the top players or top forwards, at least in the game. And this is kind of where all the trouble started. So so in 1994, before all this had happened, he signed an extension with the Dragons, which would pay him $115,000 a year for the 1995 and 1996 seasons. So I think at that stage, early 1994, he probably was happy with it. But as his year played out, and then obviously the the much bigger issue of Super League breaking, suddenly that was going to cause issues. Yet again, the signing a deal and then deciding you want more. Yeah. Because of when it happened, 
The Talus story is always held up as a Super League story, but really to me, it's just a bog standard contract dispute. Like he was free to sign a Super League deal as he did starting in 1997, three years at the Broncos. That was all sweet. It was just the issue of the 1996 season. That was what the whole dispute was about. So he's got principles on the fact, you know, I'm going to sit out this season, I'm a man's man, all well and good. But if it's him breaking a contract, it's up there with the Sonny Bill issue, isn't it? Well, we're going to get to the specifics of it. So there's competing accounts, there's some legal arguments. Um, so we're, we're going to break all of that down. And then, you know, maybe you can reserve your judgment to the end after you hear it all. But let's start with the ARL's error, an error which potentially could have stopped the whole thing. And that was to basically write him off, Phil Gould, in the contract negotiations, saying that he's just a bench player, so why do we need to give him this big deal? Like, Talis loved playing at the Dragons. Like, he, he's, you know, very close to a lot of the players there. I think probably in his heart, he always would have wanted to go back, go up to the Broncos. But I think if the ARL had, you know, shown him respect and offered him what he was worth, like, in terms of where he was at in the game, the Dragons and the ARL probably could have avoided all of it. Is this the biggest misstep from Gus in the whole ARL war? It's definitely up there. So Talis did the smart thing by not signing an ARL loyalty agreement when the St. George boss, you know, Jeff Carr obviously tied in with the ARL and, you know, at the Dragons. He was pressuring all the players to sign a loyalty agreement. Talis didn't. He, you know, got on the phone to his manager and he was like, well, no, I'm not signing now. I'm going to see what's out, what's out there. And that's what happened. Disrespected by the ARL goes on to then sign the Super League deal. And so that was, as I said, for the 97 through 99 seasons, 400,000 plus a season, um, you know, plus a $100,000 signing bonus as well. Big money back then. Mm. And so this is where I think Talis shows like the balls that he had. So that wasn't going to be enough. The, the question was where he was going to play. And Super League kept coming back to him saying, you know, you can go to Adelaide, you can go to all these places. And he was saying, no, I want to play for the Broncos. They, you know, offer him another team. You say, no, get me to the Broncos. And he says that when he first signed with Super League, they said, you know, oh, they'll see what they can do. It depends on the rosters and all that sort of thing. Something illustrative for me in this whole saga is that Talis really wanted to play for the Broncos Super League, you know, wanted to strengthen the other clubs. They didn't want to just stack the Broncos. Uh, and I think this highlights how they're always going to struggle with this, you know, all these clubs and all these players, we, they all believe in this vision and, and they're going to do everything possible to make this competition as, as good as, as can be because of this vision. Tallis said, it threatened the whole concept because they really wanted a strong, even competition, but I wasn't all that interested in that. <laughs> Yeah, the visions of a bludger bank account. I think, yeah, every club, every player was, I believe in the vision, but I'm not going to do something that's going to harm my team's chances of winning or, you know, get the best situation for me. So Super League was always going to struggle with that reality. It ended up being about five blokes and believing in the vision, and I was one of them. <laughs> but so with that contract signed, That was early in 1995, so there was still the 1995 season to play out. And on the field, it was, you know, fairly trouble-free. So Talis got in trouble at one point for wearing a Super League hat to training. 
uh, Brian Smith chipping in for that and Talos later conceding that, yeah, that was juvenile. Interestingly, Talos said that in one game during 1995, a St. George player told the, the Super League signings that they're not putting in because they've signed with Super League. Well. But for the most part, like it was, it was fairly smooth sailing and they had a, you know, decent year. And, and as I said, Talos had a year that really put him on the map as a rugby league talent. Um, but where it really fell apart was off the field. So Talos is adamant that Jeff Carr offered him a release. So in his book, he said, he said Saints couldn't afford me. And then he added, but I'll give you a release at the end of the season. I can still hear him saying those words as if he was standing right in front of me now. With that undertaking, I went back to Super League and signed. And Jeff Carr is equally adamant that that never happened. He said, we were never going to give him a release from his contract. It wouldn't have made any sense. He was contracted. It's as simple as that. We were very keen to keep him, but had very little money. I may have indicated that we would have difficulty matching the contract. He might have misconstrued that, but there was no way I meant we'd let him off the last year of his contract. We had a terrific group of players, and if we kept them together, we could have done anything. My guess on this situation is both guys believe in what they're saying. It's like... uh... Yeah, like I don't think Talos is lying. I think he definitely believes that. But it just doesn't make sense to me that Carl would release him. You know, like why would you? Could it be a case of him trying to like look into those eyes and say something that didn't infuriate him? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Sort of tiptoe around. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it might have been even been as simple as like, oh, we can talk about that, and and that being, you know, in Talis's eyes, like, yep, yeah, I'll get my release. But it yeah. just wouldn't make any sense for Carter just in that moment say, yep, you can go. But so basically, after the season, once the team came back for training in November 1995, Talis didn't return, and so that that is basically the end of his involvement with St George. He skipped training, uh, and that is where everything fell out. So it, it really heated up in March of 1996 uh, in an explosive interview with Danny Widler where, you know, he labelled the Dragons a sinking ship. He accused David Waite of saying that uh, Talis needed to be taught a lesson. There's, you know, one particularly scathing quote about the Dragons that I'll read out. I love it here uh, at the Broncos. This is 10 times better than Saints. I still like all the boys at Saints, but I'm angry with the club. Brisbane offered them a fair bit of money to buy out my deal and they knocked it back. How dumb are they? Their board are all prehistoric. They're all dinosaurs. Fair dinkum. <laughs> now it's not just money and me getting paid peanuts. It's my family too. What's funnier than the fact that he's now a dinosaur in rugby league? Like... Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, and a, a classic element of uh, contract dispute at this point, Talis had brought up the fact that he wanted to be close to his family. Um, saying, you know, his mum had moved down to Brisbane and he really wanted to be near her, thus let me go play for the Broncos. I've never seen a sport or any organisation with more reliance on family, doing it for the family, wanting to be near the family, homesickness. And there was a a rumour going around at the time that the Broncos had bought a house for for Talis's mum. In that same interview, he denies that that's the fact. The column quotes, Gordon swears she's renting it. So <laughs> I, I don't have any intel on this, but I think you can see that maybe 
the Broncos could possibly have been paying the rent on that house. It seems there was a lot left unsaid in that sentence. It's all conjecture, mate. (laughs) And then in April of 1996, the Dragons board called Talos to a meeting. So he flew down to Sydney, convinced that at this meeting he was going to be given his release. The meeting went very differently, in fact. The Dragons board just basically doubled down and said, we're not letting you go, but we're going to do all these things, um, you know, to make your time here better. We'll talk about a contract upgrade, all the rest of it, uh, just come back. And so Talos left that meeting more disillusioned than ever, uh, and from there it was time for court. So I managed to, to track down a copy of the court judgment. Did you go through this? I thought it made for some great reading. Um, I think we both know the answer to that. (laughs) But so I just wanted to talk about the court case and and some of the interesting details of the legal argument that, I don't know, said a lot to me. So basically, it all came down to the issue of an upgrade. So both parties accepted that there was a a breach of contract in place. That wasn't being disputed. It was uh, whether Talos was entitled to an upgrade uh, and whether the terms of release offered were adequate for the Dragons to have to consider that release. So basically, in his contract that he signed, at the end of the 1995 season, the contract was due for a review and a potential upgrade for the 1996 season. The Dragons' argument, which I think is pretty straightforward, was that he didn't turn up for training in November. When he boycotts training and doesn't come back to play for us, That makes us very unlikely to view a contract upgrade in a favorable light. Mm -hmm. It's funny all the the ways the case played out in terms of the argument. So one of the arguments was his replaceability as a player. So Rod Reddy um, spoke as a witness for Talos and said that he felt that Talos' services had been adequately replaced inside the St. George Club. By whom? (laughs) Well, he nominated Scott Goulet... David Barnhill, Wayne Bartram, and and Lance Thompson as, you know, all offering something equivocal to what Drag- Talos brought to the team. Well, I actually agree with that. That's that's comparable. It's comparable, but, I mean, I guess the Dragons' argument was that, yeah, uh, but we're still a lot better team with, with Talos there. Yeah. So it's funny, how do you compare an international or origin player sort of veteran status to an up-and-coming tearaway? It's like it's a hard comparison. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and you've got kind of both ends. So you had, you know, Barnhill and, and Goulet on one end. You had Talis in the middle. Then you had Lance Thompson, you know, making his debut in high school. And anytime a player debuts in high school, there's a lot of buzz about, you know, this kid could be anything. And I mean, that was certainly talked about with Lance Thompson at that time. You know, obviously mm. his career didn't hit the heights of Talis. But I think there's a solid argument there that the Dragons had some good second row talent emerging and already installed uh, and therefore he had been replaced the dragons brought in david middleton to argue their case to say that well no those players are all good but talus offers uh something special that you know can't easily be replaced by you know a run-of-the-mill player and that led to the next question as to the definition of an elite player and whether talus qualified as an elite player so there was a lot of it legal argument, and, and I love the fact that um, you know was talking about well, one side saying, "Well, no, when I consider elite, 
I'm talking about, you know, Laurie Daly and Brad Fittler. Is Talis on that level? And the other team having to concede, well, no, he's not quite on that level. And I just love the the idea of these, you know, justices having to go behind the scenes and, you know, have a pub-style <laughs> argument about whether Talis was elite. Would you submit uh, the Hall of Fame episodes of the RLD as evidence? Or? <laughs> yeah. You know, Justice Sandow saying, Talis, he's done nothing. <laughs> Martin Bella is a key witness. <laughs> um, I mean, surely making Origin is a elite level. Yeah, and all this sort of stuff was argued, and that was why Middleton was brought in, talking about him making the Origin squad, coming second in the Rugby League Week's Player of the Year award. Everyone loves David Middleton, right? Mido, as they call him, um, the king of the stats, right? I'd take his advice on constructing an Excel spreadsheet, but like, wouldn't someone like Bozo be better on the footballing ratings? Well, you've actually got a very good point there because the court actually sided with Talis on this matter because he had Rod Reddy speaking for him and the court said that, well, as someone who was a coach at the Dragons, Reddy you know, had more of an insight to David Middleton, so they were more inclined to go with Reddy's assessment. How would that be affected if they did this post-Adelaide Rams? <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, it's kind of compromised <laughs> by the fact that the Dragons were also in a legal dispute with Rod Reddy. Like, surely that <laughs> colours that. <laughs> oh, it's murky. It's so murky. <laughs> but then I guess the final question was uh, whether... He had been replaced for the 1996 season. And it's interesting to me the fact that the Dragons went on to make the grand final without him and did better than they did in 1995 with him. And obviously you can argue they'd be a better side and have a better chance of winning the grand final with Talis in the team. But I wonder legally, just say this court case was played out after the 1996 season, I wonder if legally it would have actually helped Talis to say, well, obviously I've been replaced because... We got knocked out in the first week in 1995 with me there. They made the grand final without me in 1996. Yeah. So that's something that never really got tested. But, I mean, like, think about how good that pack would have been if you did stay. Jesus. Oh, think about it. What do you think I've been doing every day for the last 25 years, <laughs> yeah, Sorry, don't think about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so Talis lost the case, which left him a bit disillusioned with uh, the court process. Uh in his words, the thing that really upset me was that it was as if it was some sort of game to the lawyers. We were talking about my life, but it seemed to me they were more keen on sounding good. <laughs> That's an argument I know well. The thinking you're a good argument can get you a punch in the head easily. <laughs> in I thought you'd appreciate that one. So what, what does he want him to go out there and go, yeah, no, nah, definitely, you're on our own. <laughs> so with all that, Talos was forced to sit out the year, which... I mean, whatever you want to say about who's in the right and the wrong in terms of the contract, like I say that that is a move of integrity from Talis. I think he's in the wrong, but he put his money where his mouth is. Yeah, definitely. It's um, man's man's move. Yeah, they said it's us or no one, and he said, right, it's no one then, and didn't play. To me, that's the rugby league spirit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was a sacrifice on many levels. So he didn't get paid for the year in 1996. You know, he was going to Broncos training, but, you know, wearing his shirt inside out, he wasn't allowed to participate in full training. They said he was basically like a tackling bag, which makes you think, like, why is he allowed to do that but not, yeah. 
you know, like full contact training. Like it, it's a weird, you know, little legal thing there. Well, it's the world's biggest disco. You can come in without a logo on your shirt in your yeah. castle, um <laughs> model, which is the most ridiculous thing ever. So. <laughs> But yeah, so tell us, like, I think his integrity shows when he, you know, at the start of the year, he says, I'm a bit like Laurie Daly. I've said I'm not going to go back, so I'm not going to go back. You know, this isn't a knock on Laurie Daly, but, you know, Laurie Daly went back, Talos said he wasn't going back, and he didn't. Uh, And in an interview with Inside Sport, he said, it taught me a hell of a lot because when you retire, it's not about your footy career, it's about the person you are. If I had the same decision again, I'd do it. You could only go on the information you were given. And on that, I made an educated decision. Well, just think about how you feel about Talos after his career now. And, it, and we still think about it, this integrity of you know standing by your word. How do, would you feel about Daly Cherry Evans after the, the Gold Coast backflip when he retires? You'd be thinking, ugh. Yeah, I hate the backflips. Like you said, he sacrificed a lot, but it's, you know, it's made him uh, revered for it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think even most Dragons fans would, would see that now. I mean, I hated Talos. I carried that hate for so many years. Um, but, you know, like I, I can look at it as an adult and say that, wow, that took balls. That took integrity. I disagree with the decision, but, you know, you stuck to your word. So, you know, and, and was ultimately rewarded for it. So as an adult, you haven't constructed any false um, realities where you got the best out of him at the Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, I'm, I'm working through these feelings, Andrew. It's 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 complicated. But I think as Dragons fans, this was a really tough period with all the players we lost, not helped by the fact that in the middle of the 1996 season, Anthony Mundine signs with the Broncos for 1997, is paraded on stage holding a Broncos jersey. It was his birthday, so Gordon Tallis comes out with a birthday cake, like that doesn't sit well with people. Great niggle, though. Well, it led to a rumor going around that the Broncos had signed Mundine specifically just to wreck the Saints. <laughs> it's more likely to wreck the Broncos than the Saints. Well, the funny thing was that Wayne Bennett, like, said he's adamant that he didn't want Mundine. Mundine was basically like forced upon him by Super League. So, as I said, Mundine had gone to dogs training. Uh, during the 1995-1996 off-season, only lasted a week because for whatever reason, whether it was Chris Anderson or something else, he just didn't like the vibe. Ended up training by himself for the rest of that off-season. Signed with Super League uh, and either he demanded or something was worked out that he was going to go to the Broncos. Uh, You know, Wayne Bennett said it was basically beyond my control. Uh, He did say that, and this was in his book, so 11 years after the incident, he said that, he still felt terrible about it to to this day, the, you know, parading of Mundine in the Broncos jersey. Yeah, well, Well, I think he learned to love Mundine, didn't he, after that as a player and the bloke? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, well, he was in the grand final squad, wasn't he? So, Yeah. But, you know, speaking of grand finals, the Dragons had the 1996 grand final to play, and so did Manly. That is obviously going to be a big part of our 1996 season recap in a few chapters' time. So we won't go into the the grand final today. But it's just very interesting that the three players involved in these holdouts, you had Ridge on the field, Talis, you know, sitting out for the Dragons and Roberts sitting out for for Manly. So it's very interesting that it was these two teams that faced each other. Yeah. But, um, you know, 
this episode, I think, as as you can tell, and most of our listeners too, has been a bit of therapy for me. So <laughs> I just wanted to close it by thinking about you know Talus's Broncos years. I, I something that will stay with me till my dying day is being there at Cogra Oval for his first game back at Cogra in 1998. So wow. I was sitting there uh, at the northern end. The crowd were just giving it to him all night, like. Probably the the worst I've ever heard at a game. Like it started from his name being read out in the Broncos team list, and it just went on from there. It was like constant for for nearly eighty minutes. Uh, you know, Talis just copying it. Uh, he ended up scoring the try that won the game for the Broncos, uh, and I was right there. Like, <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. So it was he scored in the corner that I was sitting at. Got up. I still see it so clearly. Like eyes were like. It was an inferno. He was so angry, just like, you know, <laughs> put his arm up in defiance, in celebration. It's electric. I'm convinced that from that moment on, we were cursed against the Broncos for a number of years. Every time we played them from there, I was like, oh, no. And I feel like the team felt like that too. I actually went back to look at the records of, you know, Dragons versus Broncos in the Talos years and found that it wasn't as bad as I remembered, but it did take us, I think, three years from 1998 to, to beat them. So definitely in the early period of his Broncos career, they had the wood on us. It was hard for anybody to beat him in that era, but, I mean, I'm sure he lifted an extra 20% every time he played the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. But just like, that sowed St. George fans to, instead of being magnanimous, they'd be vindictive and then uh, make the guy so furious he wins the game and gets them. <laughs> <laughs> You got skull leading the leading the jeez. <laughs> oh no, he he was banned by that point. He wasn't there. <laughs> but yeah, so I want to close this by offering a formal apology to Gordon Tallis for the ill thoughts I carried about him for twenty years or so. All is forgiven, Gordy. <laughs> and I'd like to say, if we ever meet Gordon, um, I'm afraid of you. <laughs> Uh, so that is our chapter. Um, as always, we'd love to hear from you, Dragons fans especially, Broncos fans, um, but anything we've talked about in this episode, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts on. This was a big one for me. It, it was more more of an emotional journey than I was ready for. It was, yeah. It really was. I could feel you, uh, the ups and downs on that one, mate. Yeah. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back with the, the next chapter of the Super League War soon. Uh, and we will speak to you then. Take care.